and welcome to the ninth episode of the McMaster Communications Governance Observatory podcast. My name is Samantha Naidu, and for this episode, we will be continuing the eighth episode and still exploring the topic of platform regulation, but focusing more on the realities of it as opposed to antitrust action, which was part one. To speak more on this topic, we have Dr. Tamara Shepard, an expert researcher and assistant professor in the Department of Communication, Media, and Film at the University of Calgary. So Dr. Shepard, we spoke a lot about antitrust action last time. But moving on to, I guess, more about Facebook, uh, there's a lot of discussion about taking down fake news, um, harmful or violent content on Facebook due to the harms and kind of, I guess, the triggers that some of these content can cause. So, but at the same time, there's always that argument about freedom of expression. So what do you think should be done or what are your thoughts on this issue? Yeah, so the whole issue of balancing free speech and hate speech or, you know, misinformation obviously has a much longer history than social media sites, but has come up a lot recently given this these sorts of um, elections, mostly election-based misinformation campaigns that we've seen, as well as this sort of political polarization um, across the world in the, in the rise of, let's say, far-right populism. Um, for example. So certainly this is an old question that's that's resurfacing in a new way right now and I think is really interesting. Um, but I, I might just like shift the question a little bit to um, to not necessarily talk about balancing hate speech against free speech because there is uh, there is, as I said, a, a kind of like long tradition of, of this um, debate and where you know where to draw these lines and things like that. Um, but on social media sites, there is a, a logistical sort of problem of how to even assess content, like how to even label what is hate speech, what is misinformation, what is fake news. And the different sites have tried to approach this differently. So, um, I mean, in practice, the companies themselves often come up with their own guidebooks for what's allowed or not allowed on their platforms. And there is a lot of controversy often around those rules. So um, particularly uh, things like rules against certain kinds of nudity have been brought up as um, potentially uh, discriminatory, right, in one way, or rules against certain kinds of um, saying certain things in different countries are different according to the rules of those countries. Um, I know Facebook has this sort of like guidebook of what counts as violent speech and like certain things that are violent are not counted as violent and other things that are not so violent are counted as violent. Yeah, so it's really difficult because a lot of that is not public. Um, so usually it's these like internal guidebooks that the companies use to determine what come, what stays and goes on their platforms. And they will have, of course, some sort of like content policy that you can read if you're a user. But often that just gives you a pretty vague understanding of what they what they take down and what they leave up. And um, so it's I mean, just to say that is all that is to say that it's, it's far from a sort of democratic process of determining what should be up there and what shouldn't be up there. And then the way that it works is people often think that it's algorithms that filter out the content, but often it's not. It's often human workers who actually have to sift through all the kind of horrible stuff that people post manually and decide what stays or goes. So um, Sarah Roberts, who is a, a scholar 
in LA is probably the most um, well-known scholar in this area. She's been working in this area for many years, looking at the labor of content moderation. So the workers that look at pretty much horrible content all day and have to decide what stays or goes and the toll that it takes on them, right, basically. So, yeah, and so there is a, there is like this horrible job that exists um, because algorithms can't really, they're not sophisticated enough yet. Maybe they will be. I mean, it's hard to know, but um, they're not sophisticated enough yet to make these sort of like subtle judgments that are often kind of culturally specific, depending on what country you're in, for example, um, to, to determine, you know, what counts as hate speech or not. Right. So it's not just a matter of like filtering out certain words because words can be used in different kinds of contexts. And you can, for example, have a statement that has no sort of like flagged words in it that might be hateful and vice versa. So, I mean, there are other systems like the system of flagging where users submit something to Facebook that they think is against the content policy. But then that also can be, of course, misused to try to like target somebody that they don't like, for example, things like that. So none of these systems are terribly effective. Um, there's no really good way that any of these companies have figured out how to deal with content moderation yet. Um, and some platforms have a harder time, like YouTube is a really difficult one because you have to go through videos and watch entire videos to try to determine if this is going to be misinformation. Or, so, I mean, YouTube has a really difficult time with their content and they haven't done a very good job. I mean, nobody really has done a good job in this area. It's difficult. So I think like, like beyond determining like what should stay and what should go, it's like, how do we even measure those? How do we, yeah, do, how do we even yeah. sift through the amount of stuff that gets posted? Right. So, yeah. So there's like a really big um, logistical problem that is not even necessarily a problem for regulators. It's probably more of a problem for the platforms themselves because they are invested in keeping their platforms uh, at least appearing like a safe place. If they want to attract more and more users, they have to make the space attractive. And if place, if spaces online are filled with all kinds of vitriolic garbage, then nobody's going to want to sign up. So, so they have their own motivation to do this and they're trying, I'm sure they're really trying. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I think it seems like a really almost impossible problem. Uh, yeah. If you're I feel like if you're sifting through it with humans, there's just not enough yeah. manpower, human labor power to just go through millions and millions and millions of posts and videos exactly and then it's a terrible job like nobody stays in that job for very long people get ptsd and things from looking at yeah they do not have benefits that set them up with a counselor no, no i mean it's a it's like precarious labor it's underpaid work and then it's mentally harmful on top of that so there's a high turnover nobody really stays there for too long Often. Oh, man. Do you see any sort of solution coming anytime soon? Or do you think it's just a trial and error process as technology grows and like we learn as a population? Yeah, I mean, I think it's trial and error for a few reasons. I mean, one of the reasons that is trial and error is that that's part of the ethos of Silicon Valley, right? It's this idea of the move fast and break things idea where you you just build it and then figure it out later sort of thing. So I mean, a lot of companies work that way. Um, Google is a really famous one for doing that, where, for example, when they started doing Street View, 
Um, and Google just liked sent cars out and took pictures on the street. And <laughs> I remember. Yeah. That. And then as people got a little bit uneasy with that or, you know, started threatening uh, litigation against Google, they're just like, oh, well, we didn't realize that. But they're so big that they can settle any sort of lawsuits that they get. Right. So um, it's difficult to, like, take these companies to task because, again, they have so much money. Yeah. No, I agree. And then I guess for our last couple of questions, just do you think there's anything else that we should be doing regulation-wise? Or do you think we're kind of in the place that we're at and we're just moving forward as we learn more? Yeah, I mean, I think if Canada if Canada is committed to, to keeping going this conversation about how to regulate platforms, I think doing things like hosting the International Grand Committee is is very good. I think it's very valuable. And moving forward, I think contributing in that way to a global discussion would be the most effective way that Canada could, could contribute. Um, since there's not that much we can do on our own. So, <laughs> I mean, like to put it in perspective, like Facebook, for example, they have over 2 billion monthly active users right now. And the population of Canada is about 37 million. So that's like a drop in the bucket. So I think you necessarily, you need to have a global discussion um, with several different regulators of larger countries than us um, to look at not only privacy regulation and misinformation as this grant committee did, but also exploring like, okay, if we're going to talk about antitrust, how would that actually work? What are the pieces that would need to be in place for this to be effective? Or other solutions that have been proposed are things like accountability. So you know, requiring these companies to um, be more transparent about what they're doing, to account for the problems that might arise, like the Cambridge Analytica thing, um, for example. Um, and on this topic of accountability, there's one thing I think that hasn't been mentioned enough that is a huge piece of the puzzle, which is tax evasion. <laughs> so, Trump comes to mind. Yeah. I mean, again, like, well, like Trump is interesting because I think the way he's targeted Amazon, I mean, seems to be some sort of personal grudge going on there. I don't know. But I do agree that companies like Amazon, they need to be paying their taxes. They're not paying taxes. They're evading their taxes in all sorts of tricky schemes that are used by other sorts of companies, not only social media companies, but they're taking advantage of all kinds of like international tax evasion schemes. And that's one way that they can have exert so much power is that they're not paying their share of taxes. So, you know, they're keeping that that profit. And I think if if Canada could get together with other international regulators and try to close those loops that companies are using for tax evasion, that would be like a really important step in the in the process. That's so interesting. And I guess comparing what you just said about how they're really big kind of mega companies how much do you think the public can really do or how much influence do we have if we in talk to our government or participate in these public consultations what can we really do to inform policy yeah i think this question of how how much influence the public could potentially be ha having in informing policies like this is a i mean again it's another huge question that has like a lot of variation and we can think about different domains of policy making, like environmental policy, health policy, whatever, in addition to sort of media or internet policy as being really variable 
um, depending on you know what the what the particular issue is at that time, what the what government you're dealing with, what are the sort of systems in place. Um, so, for example, it's a lot easier to see an impact of of campaigning at a smaller, more local scale, obviously, right? So, in terms of federal policymaking having to do with the internet, um, I mean, there there is a let's say there is a space of possibility. There is, <laughs> there is an attempt that a lot of regulators are making to involve the public in policy debates. So that's step one is like, does the, does the regulator even care <laughs> necessarily? So in Canada, I think we have, we have regulators that do make a concerted effort to consult with the public, to listen to what people are saying, to have channels open for pu- public members of the public to, to have their say. So I think that's, that's a really important like first step to have. Um, but it's often impossible to know, you know, at least in internet policy, like, which is an area that I've done research in, it's impossible to know how much that sort of public consultation actually influences the decisions that get made since a lot of the decisions in the end are made behind closed doors. So, the decisions get made. There's a report about how the decision is made, but often those reports are, you know, pretty vague um, about really what's happening or um, might conceal things like lobbying to the extent that it happens. Of course, that happens a lot more in the U.S. than in Canada, but there's still lobbying going on here. So um, so that's kind of difficult. I think to in order to measure how much public um, input is going into policymaking, really the proof is in the decisions that get made and the kinds of legislation that gets passed, A, but also B, in the way that that legislation gets enforced. So you can pass all kinds of awesome progressive legislation, but if it's not being enforced consistently or in an effective way, then you might as well not have it at all. So for example, in the in the grand committee, they talked a lot about um, the European regulation that we have for privacy. So the general data protection regulation or GDPR. Um, which is a very strong piece of legislation to protect online privacy. It's really important that that was passed. But um, so far, we haven't seen a lot of impact from it because there haven't been the sort of huge fines levied yet that they were Mm. threatening. And maybe once those huge, I mean, the fines have to be pretty big to make a dent (laughs) in a company like Facebook. But if that starts happening, then we might see some change. But really, it's like in the enforcement of this sort of legislation that um, things might happen. So that's sort of like one way to see public input actually having an effect is it just takes time for, first of all, legislation to be passed and then to be enacted and then to be enforced. Um, and, and you know, behind the scenes, as I mentioned, there's like lobbying going on <laughs> in different ways, in more and less overt ways. So the size, again, of these social media giant companies um, makes them quite formidable. They're, they're huge companies. They can exert a lot more pressure on governments than any sort of individual can. Um, and I, and I think Amazon offers a really illustrative example of this. So when Amazon was debating a couple of years ago, where to set up its next headquarters, you saw all kinds of municipal governments offering crazy incentives Mm -hmm. to Amazon to open up this headquarters there, right? It's so crazy, like the Olympics. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. And I mean, Calgary is one of those cities that was doing crazy stuff. So, <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and you can see in Toronto, I mean, the big, the big dis- debate now is over sidewalk labs of Google um, taking over the development of the harbor front. So I think 
you know, you see um, the influence of these companies at different levels. Um, and this is just really another iteration of the way that large companies in general can exert political power. Um, and this time it's not just through the use of their platforms for spreading misinformation. So that's obviously like a big source of political power for something like Facebook. But even more kind of behind the scenes that Facebook has an influence through its relationships with governments um, in these sorts of like lobbying efforts or development efforts, like with Free Basics, for example. Oh, man. I mean, on that happy note. Yeah, it's never happy. It's <laughs> always going to be bad. <laughs> um, those are all the questions that I have for today. But I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Shepard, for agreeing to be on the podcast today. It was extremely engaging and educational, and I think everyone will learn a lot when they listen to it. And thank you to everyone for tuning in to this month's episode of the McMaster Communications Governance Observatory podcast. You can find more episodes on cgo.mcmaster.ca. See you next month.